that he wanted them to say. And uh, very important. Numbers is known as the book of wanderings. The book of wanderings. Now, the reason it's called Numbers is because Israel is numbered here. They take a census. They've just come out of Egypt. And so God numbers them and sets them in tribes and tries to get account and help everybody understand, uh, kind of give some organizational structure, if you will, to the nation. We'll find that there are two different numberings that take place here. One of them is found in chapter number one. <clears throat> the other one is found, in, let me make sure I'm telling you right, in verse number tw- or chapter number 26. So you'll find the first numbering taking place here by Looking at the two different numberings and what are given, the information that's given here, we come to the conclusion that more than likely there was about 2.5 million Israelites uh, at this point in time, pretty close to that number. Um, and you can tell that by looking at the two numberings that are done here in this particular book. Leviticus took us uh, to the point of the foot of Mount Sinai. When they came out of Egypt, they went to the foot of Mount Sinai, and that's where God told them to go. And Leviticus covers a time period of about one month. We get into the book of Numbers, and Numbers stretches a span of from the time that they leave Sinai, actually uh, 20 days prior to leaving Sinai is where it begins. And uh, it stretches all the way through uh, the 39 years of their wanderings. And so that's why it's known as or referred to as the book of wanderings. Um, we find that there were two numberings given. One of them was there at the base of Mount Sinai. The last one in chapter number 26 is on the plains of Moab. And um, there's three major areas that they are dealing with during this time period. Uh, The area at the base of Mount Sinai, which is where the book begins. And uh, chapters 1 through 14 deals with that, that first period of time. And then there's a transitional period from about chapter 14 to about chapter 22, 23, somewhere in there, uh, where there is a wanderings in the Kadesh Barnea area. If you're familiar with some of the biblical geography uh, over there, uh, the Kadesh Barnea, maybe next week, I should have had the map up today perhaps, but uh, we can show you how that took place. And they basically just kind of wander in this area for a a large amount of time. And uh, then they encamp at the end of it at the plains, on the plains of Moab, just east of, of the uh, promised land, getting ready to go in uh, to uh, cross the Jordan River. <clears throat> and so uh, there's a, a main lesson that I think is kind of the, the broad sweeping lesson that is taught from the book of Numbers. Uh, there's many, many lessons to be found, obviously, but If we were to look at the book as a whole and try to understand uh, one major truth that God is trying to get across here, I believe it would be this, that while it may become necessary for us to pass through what the Bible would refer to here as a wilderness type of experience, we do not have to live there. Uh, That's the problem that the nation of Israel failed to understand early on. The journey from Egypt by by foot and even with that large of a crowd, the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land should have only taken about 11 or 12 days. And they turned an 11 to 12 day journey into a 49 year uh, of uh, years of uh, suffering and chastening and and trying of their faith. And uh, 
the, the lesson I think we can look at as a whole from this book is uh, let's learn from their mistakes. <laughs> let's not do what they did. Let's not take so long to learn the lesson that God has for us. Um, I would. Somebody said years ago, uh, a smart man will learn from their mistakes, but a wise man will learn from someone else's mistakes. And there's a lot of a lot of truth to that in that we can look at the nation of Israel and find that they were kind of a ragtag group of ex-slaves coming out of Egypt and had spent uh, uh, you know several hundred years there in Egypt uh, under slavery. And here God delivers them and shows Himself mighty even through the plagues that brought the deliverance. And the Israelites were a part of that and saw that. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the annihilation of the Egyptians. They saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They saw all these things. They saw the manna that came down from heaven. They saw the water that God supplied miraculously and supernaturally. And yet when they get to the promised land, which happened just a short while after they left the foot of Mount Sinai, they decided they were not going to trust God. Could you imagine having been an eyewitness to all of the mighty works of God on their behalf. And then to get to the promised land and say, we're afraid to go in. Uh, I look at that and I scratch my head and I think, boy, how little faith these people must have had. And uh, it's interesting to me as I look at that and how critical I am of the nation of Israel until I begin to reflect back on myself and look at my own life and how often challenges and trials and things that uh, are bigger than I can handle come into my life. And how quick am I to have absolute faith that God is in control? How quick am I to say that He's going to do these things? And before we get overly critical of the nation of Israel, I don't believe that they were any less spiritual than most of us sitting in this room today. I think they struggled with the same battles that you and I face today. And so I believe there's a wonderful lesson to be learned overall, overall through the book. There are uh, internal evidences and external evidences. I'm going to give those quickly uh, that are found in this book itself and then in other passages in the Scripture that identify Moses as being the author. Uh, the, first of all, external evidences. The Jews and the Samaritans, which were never friends with each other, they were always at odds with each other, but they were both in agreement that Moses was the author of this. Also, the early New Testament church accepted without question the fact that Moses was the author of these five books. Uh, so there were some great evidences of that. John chapter number 3 and verse number 14, John refers to the fact that Moses is the author. In Acts chapter number 7 and Acts chapter number 13, you'll find again it's referred to as Moses being the author. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 11 Hebrews chapter 3 uh, and chapter number 4, and then Jude verse 11. So a lot of external evidences outside of the book of Numbers that all point back to it and say Moses was the author of this. Inside the book we find, and I already mentioned this, but over 80 times the Bible says, uh, the Lord said or spake unto Moses. So we understand again this is being penned by Moses. Numbers chapter 33, take your Bibles and look there with me just for a moment. Numbers chapter 33, and let's look at verse number 2. Numbers chapter 33, verse number 2. 
The Bible says, And Moses wrote their goings out according to their journeys, notice this, by the commandment of the Lord. And these are the journeys according to their goings out. Now, there is some slight argument by a few people that say, well, there are times where the writer of, of Numbers uh, refers to himself in the third person. But understand that this was quite a common practice in the time period of this writing, that many times authors, when writing about things, uh, they would use, uh, if, if, the, if the thing they were writing about was bigger than just them, it's not like a biography about them, but just the events that were happening to a, a group of people, they oftentimes would refer to themselves in the third person. In fact, John uh, even in the New Testament, is very, very much a person like this who will refer to himself in the third person, even though he was the author of many of these things. And so that's not really an argument. If you ever hear somebody say, well, then why would he refer to himself in the third person? That, that was just a technique of writing back then. It was an acceptable way of writing. I think there are so many other evidences that Moses is the author. Uh, the fact that uh, so many folks uh, over the years have made it a, kind of an acceptable thing. That, uh, that there's enough evidence to conclude without question that Moses is the author uh, of Numbers. Now, and when I say author, we all understand this, that he was the human instrument that was used by God. Of course, God gave him uh, what was to be written. And uh, we need to understand this very clearly when it comes to our Bibles. We don't have a Bible here that gives us the record of what men think God's thoughts are. We have a book here of what God's Word is uh, to these men. He's given it to them. If we don't have an absolute authority, and this is a very critical thing, uh, we, we believe that the King James Version, the old King James Version, <coughs> is the preserved, inspired Word of God for English-speaking people. We strongly, strongly hold to this issue. And if we differ from this, if we say, well, I, there, there may be problems with it, or there may be translational errors, or there may be problems, then we do not have an authority. If there are problems with our foundation, then anything we build on top of it is going to be weak and crumble. You say, does it really matter what we hold to as far as Scripture? Absolutely it does. Because we don't get up here and teach what we think men meant by that. We get up here and we teach... What did God say in His Word to us? The authority being God, not men. And any time we come in here and we try to correct this book or say this didn't, shouldn't mean this, it should mean something different uh, than this, and we try to correct the words that are in there, uh, then we are saying that there is a problem with our translation. And we no longer have an authority of God on it. Now we have an authority of man. And that is always going to be able to have chinks in the army and weaknesses to it and will always be able to be debated and, and cause problems. So we hold to the Bible being absolutely 100% true. That's not part of what Numbers is dealing with, but it is important to us that we understand these things. Uh, numbers begins about 20 days prior to them leaving Mount Sinai. It deals, uh, in chapters 1 through the end of chapter 10, it deals with that last 20 days or so there at the foot. Then it deals with the wanderings around Kadesh Barnea, and that happens um, from about uh, chapter 10 to about chapter 22 or so, or chapter 11 through about chapter 22, 23. 
And then uh, from 23 on uh, to the end of the book is dealing with the time on their plains at Moab. When they were camped, it's estimated that they, the 2.5 million people uh, more than likely occupied several square miles. Now, that's not a biblical fact. That's something somebody had tried to estimate, and I thought that would be a rather interesting thing to think about. Because here, here we have Moses, uh, who's doing his best to lead these people. Uh, usually in the fall or spring of the year, we do a men and boys camp out. And I plan for days. And we go and prepare and we get everything ready. And we may have eight or ten people go. And there's a lot of logistics to that. And by the time I get home, after a day of this, I'm wore out. i got to go to bed and sleep. It's, I'm just exhausted from it. Could you imagine trying to lead a camp out with 2.5 million people? The chaos of that. How, and so God gave some great insight to Moses. We've read about it back in, uh, in Exodus. God sent his father-in-law to him and said, Moses, you're consumed by this. And so God gives direction. And isn't it amazing that we look at this and we think, well, it just happened. These people were able to wander in the wilderness and they were able to be structured. And they were able to be organized. Can I tell you this? The wanderings themselves were a supernatural act of God. Moses could never have dealt with a camp out with 2.5 million people. Could never have happened. When we think of this, we've got to understand God, God is at work even in the things that we don't look at as obvious in this book. Things that we just, we just think, oh, that just happened. That's it. Moses led them. They followed. They set up their tents. There had to be great, great workings of God in the midst of these people. For that many to be in that much, that close of proximity for that length of time in bad conditions in the wilderness for 40 years. And God still preserved them. Some of us can't go on vacation for a week without wanting to kill half our family. And here these people make it for 40 years. And I bring that out to bring this because it's not a thought we think of very often. The very fact that these folks wandered for 40 years is a supernatural act of God. During that time period, God supplied their food. Not just occasionally, but every single day He supplied their food. During that time, He supplied their water. Their clothing and their shoes did not wear out for 40 years. Some of you ladies would be in absolute, utter depressed state all the time, not being able to go and shop and get new shoes and new clothes. But we look at that, and we kind of chuckle at that, but the truth is, that was a supernatural act of God. Not one that was noticed. And have you noticed this? There are times in our lives that we see God's hand at work. We pray for a prayer, and God answers it, and boy, we get excited. We come to church, we tell the folks about it, everybody amens and is excited about it. But what about the things that we don't recognize that are still God's provident hand at work in our lives? The small things that we take for granted sometimes. That we just overlook and say, boy, that just happened. <coughs> I think there's a wonderful truth that is hidden under the, under the surface of numbers. And that is that for this thing to even happen for 40 years, God was at work. God did some amazing things. He feeds them. He gives them clothing. He or makes sure their clothing doesn't wear out. He uh, allows them to get along. I'm not saying that there weren't some skirmishes, and certainly Moses had to deal with people that were mad at each other, but God was able to have a calmness over that group of folks. 
Then let's look at how Christ is pictured in the book of Numbers. We're going to look at several passages, so keep your Bibles here. Turn with me first to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Probably one of the most famous uh, pictures of Christ is found in the picture of the brazen serpent that was raised up. And and if you'll look with me in chapter number 21, (coughs) and let's begin reading in verse number 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. We're in uh, Numbers 21 and verse number 4. And they journeyed from from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth. This light bread. And they're speaking there of the manna that God had been providing for them. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, <coughs> and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, uh, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Oh, what a wonderful picture of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold your place here for just a moment. And uh, let's turn uh, to the book of John, the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the New Testament, chapter number 3. One of the great famous passages uh, of John, and one of the most famous is John 3 and verse number 16. But just a few verses before that, in verse number 14, John is penning the words that Christ is speaking here. And Christ says this in His earthly ministry, as Moses And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What an amazing truth. And we understand from the context of this that Jesus is speaking here of the fact that he's going to have to be raised up. He's going to have to be crucified on a cross for the sins of men. And the wonderful picture that even Jesus goes and points back to, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, isn't it amazing that all the way back then, about 1444 or so B.C., 1446 B.C., that God already had Calvary all planned out. It was already done. In His mind, it was just as done as if it had already happened. It was all completed. What an amazing thought as uh, we realize that He caused Moses to do something with the children of Israel that helped us to illustrate the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and pointed 
pointed people in the Old Testament to the, 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 the sacrifice that was yet to come. Another portrait that we find is in Numbers chapter number 20. If you have your Bibles, turn over there for a moment. Numbers chapter 20. Another portrait of Christ or a picture of Christ in the Old Testament here in this book. Let's look in verse number 1. We'll read down several verses. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. <coughs> and the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died with our brethren before... Uh, uh, brethren... <laughs> So let me try that again. Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why they have brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there. Wherefore have ye made us come up out of Egypt? You know how many times they refer back to that? Every time the going got tough, they referred back to Egypt. As if Egypt wasn't tough. What were they doing in Egypt? They were slaves, weren't they? Backbreaking work in the hot sun. They said, oh, we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. You know how often when we get saved, we go back and say, I want my old life. I want my old life. We used to live in that old life, didn't we, before we got saved? It wasn't, the answer wasn't there. That's why we decided we wanted to be saved. We wanted to trust Christ as our Savior. The answer wasn't in the old life. Why in the world would we ever want to go back to it? Yet these, these children of Israel do this over and over and over again. And uh, verse number 5, And wherefore have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? Is it no place, it is no place of seed, or of figs, or of vines, or of pomegranates? Neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. By the way, whenever there's a problem, that's always the place we ought to go. To the presence of God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth <coughs> to them water out of the rock, so that thou shalt give the congregation and their beast drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels. Well, wouldn't you love to have Moses as your leader? He gets up there and tells it like it is. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. Now, was that what God had told him to do? Moses, up until this point in time, for the most part, uh, when God told him to do something, he did it. He did it the right way. And he always referred to the fact that God was the supplier of it. The great sin of this, I think, was not so much in the smiting of the rock, although certainly disobedience to God is a, is a great and a grave sin. But I believe possibly far greater even than that would be this, that the Bible says in verse number 11, or uh, I'm sorry, verse number, yeah, verse number 11, and Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod he smote the rock twice, uh, and I'm sorry, back verse number 10. And Moses uh, gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, now notice this, Here now, you rebels, must, notice this next little two-letter word, must what? Must we 
fetch you water out of this rock. What a grave, grave thing for Moses to take the credit and the glory that God was wanting to get out of this thing in the eyes of the people. Instead of people looking at Moses and saying, what a great God we have that He supplied us water, they looked at Moses and said, what a great leader He is that He was able to give us water. And Moses takes the glory from God. Before we get too critical of Moses, how often do we take God's glory? The things that God does in our life, how often we take credit for them. Especially if they're good. Especially if they're things that cause people to say, boy, what a, what a great Christian that person is. They must really walk with God. They must really have a testimony. I think people ought to see our good works. And the Bible teaches us this in Matthew chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. That when men see our good works, they need to be able to glorify our Father, not us. Moses took the credit. He took the glory. Moses, verse number 10. I'm sorry, verse number 12. Uh, and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believe me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and He was sanctified in them. This is a wonderful, uh, wonderful miracle that God did was overshadowed by the sin and the judgment of God upon Aaron and Moses. And because of this one thing in this particular passage, God said, you're not going to get to go into the promised land. Boy, what a, what a letdown. Could you imagine? Moses having to put up with 2.5 million people to go through all that he did to stand before Pharaoh. And he does this. He simply takes God's glory. He tries to put it on himself. Whether it was in a moment of weakness, whether it was in a moment of frustration or anger, I don't know. Maybe all of the above. But he took God's glory. And God said, because of it, Moses, you're not going to get to go into the promised land. You nor Aaron. But one of the great pictures that we see here is the water that comes from the rock. This is referred to by the Apostle Paul. If you will, hold your place here. We're going to come back to it. But let's see what Paul says about it, shall we? Go to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians, chapter number 10. Let's look in verse number 3. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capital R. Notice this, that followed them, and the rock was what? Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Jesus met the woman at the well, and He told her, He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me to give you water that you'd never thirst again. He's pictured as the water of life. The other thing that we find in Numbers as a picture of Christ is the bread of life, the manna that God supplied day in and day out. In John chapter number 6, if you have time, and we've got just a minute or so here, so we'll move through and get to the end of our lesson here. But John chapter number 6, John chapter number 6, <coughs> excuse me, and let's look in verse number 31. Our fathers 
did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. And this wonderful picture of manna coming down from heaven, and the wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ being the bread of life that also came to us from heaven and brings us life. Three wonderful pictures in the, in the book of Numbers that are referred to by other authors of Scripture as the pictures of Christ and His work. Certain keys to Revelation, or to Revelation, I, that's, I'm stuck on Wednesday nights here. Certain keys to, uh, to uh, uh, Numbers uh, is uh, the word wanderings is the key word, of course. The key verses, uh, chapter 14, verse 22 and 23. Let's take a moment to look at this. Uh, in uh, Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22 and 23, we find the turning point for the nation of Israel. This was a crossroads. This was a distinct difference in what took place, uh, uh, whether they were going to go into the promised land early or late. In chapter 14 and uh, verse number 20, let's go to verse number 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. And I understand they had come to the, the brink of, of uh, the promised land. They had sent the spies in, the twelve spies. They were in there for 40 days. And uh, they came back out. Ten of them brought a negative report. Joshua and Caleb brought a positive report. Said, we can do it. We can go in. God will fight for us. But ten of them said no. And the nation of Israel didn't go. And God sends a judgment on them. And Israel repents. And they say, okay, Lord, we'll go. And God said, too late. And so he gives them one year of wandering for every day that the spies were in the land, the 40 days. And that brings us to where we're at here. In uh, uh, verse number 20, uh, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, because Moses goes to intercede for them. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Here we have a picture of uh, two other attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ that I think are very, very critical. We see the goodness of God but we also see the severity of God. God told Moses in verse 20, He said, I have pardoned. I'll forgive them. But there are consequences to their choices. I've had people come to me before when their life has gotten messed up, and there's times I've had my life uh, where I've had some things that I've had to bear some consequences of poor decisions, things I did contrary to the Word of God. There have been people who have come to me for counsel sometimes and said, uh, Pastor, the, the weight of what I'm going through is too great. And it was the consequence of a sinful lifestyle and turning from God. And I've talked with him and I've said, God is a God that forgives. There's no doubt. But it doesn't erase all the time the scars that we bear because of those choices. Somebody said one time, you can, choose your, you can make your own choice, but you can't choose the consequences of those choices. Those are locked in. And here are these people of Israel, they, they fail to follow after and be faithful to God. 
And uh, they, this, is, this is a crucial passage in Numbers where everything changed for the nation of Israel. From this point forward, everything changed. And uh, a key verse. The key chapter is Numbers chapter 14. It was the point where they rejected God and refused to go up into conquering of the land. Just a couple of quick notes I've written down. That's pretty much the whole survey of the book. Uh, just a high-level survey, of course. You can read it for yourself and gain a lot more from it, obviously. But uh, they are delivered out of Egypt, and the painful process of testing and mature growth begins. These are, if you will, these are folks that need to learn of God's faithfulness to them, of God's power and might. And uh, oftentimes when we get saved, we, we can picture coming out of Egypt in the Old Testament as the time that we get saved. And the wilderness wanderings as our time on this earth. And then going into the promised land is the time that we go to heaven and are there for eternity. And uh, the, there are songs written of crossing the Jordan. And uh, the idea that that's uh, symbolic of the time that we die from this body and go to heaven. Uh, so you can take those, those things and they kind of picture that, that lifestyle. And if that's the case, the truth is when we first got saved, uh, we were excited. God did a great work. But now that we are saved comes the time of testing and growing and maturing. And there ought to be a continuous growth in our life from now until the time that we get to heaven. We ought never get to the place where we're content where we are spiritually. Uh, I've been saved a long time, and there are times that I grow cold and content with where I'm at. And God has to kind of get a hold of my attention again and say, you're not there yet. <laughs> You've got a long ways to go. And uh, striving for that, pressing for the mark, running the race with patience ought to be the goal of every one of us, ought to be the desire of every one of us. And so uh, they began this painful process. It took 40 years for God to get them from a place of being ex-slaves to being the children of God ready to enter the promised land. It took 40 years for Him to get them that way. And I hope that it doesn't take us that long. And, uh, but uh, what, a, what a wonderful thought. There are three different generation or two generations that are here. Uh, you have the old generation, and uh, that is in chapters one through ten. And then you have that transitional period, and then it ends with uh, the new generation coming in. And these are folks that are excited; they just don't know any better than to trust God. And uh, chapter twenty-six through the end of the book deals with the new generation. It's interesting that there are sets of twos that are found in the book of Numbers. There are two generations that are mentioned. Chapters 1 to 14, chapter 21 to 36. There are two different numberings that take place. One at the foot of Mount Sinai, one in the plains of Moab, just before they go into the Promised Land. There are two journeyings that are mentioned, chapters 10 through 14, and chapters 21 through 27. And this is interesting to me. There are two sets of instructions given. The instructions given the second time were not the same as the instructions given to the first group. This is, this is a trend throughout Scripture, if you think about it. God has something that He expects to be a certain way, and He gives instructions for that. And when the sinfulness of man and our free will takes over, and we do not follow that, then God oftentimes gives us another set of instructions. For instance, uh, when Adam and Eve were created, put in the Garden of Eden, they were put in there as perfect they were told that in the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree that was in the midst of the garden, they would surely die. And that's all that was told to Adam and Eve. 
Adam and Eve, of their own free will, chose to sin. And when they did, God being a just God, had to demand the penalty of death. If He didn't, He wouldn't be God. But He did say, because of what man has done now, I'm going to make a way. And God, of course, knew this before all of this ever happened, that He was going to do these things. And you say, well, how does that work then? Why does He, if He knew this stuff, why would He do it to begin with? Uh, I don't claim to know the mind of God on that. But I will say this, that God made a way. And He gave a new set of instructions. If we're ever going to be with Him for eternity, it's not to just be in the garden and keep it and tend it and not eat of the tree anymore. Now we have to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and His payment on Calvary. New set of instructions. We find this happening over and over again throughout Scripture with different things in in our life where we fail. And it wasn't God's original plan, but when man, because of his sinful condition, did these things, then God gives new instructions. And God says, okay, you can now uh, follow this set of plans for the rest and be able to to get through there. And so we find that happening here. Uh, What a wonderful book Numbers is. It's... uh, a lot of genealogies in the early part, and you get down to chapter 26, you'll see a lot more genealogies and numbers and different things. What a wonderful book to see the mighty hand and power of God. And a lot of lessons that we can look at and learn from. And I hope that that will be a help and a blessing to you. Uh, I will get uh, these notes back there on the back. I do have uh, one typo, two, three, four typos I think I see on here. I copied and pasted the format of my Leviticus notes, so a lot of my notes say keys to Leviticus, and it should be numbers and not Leviticus. So, But it does say numbers survey at the top, so you'll know what I mean by that. All right, But I will have those available on the table in the back. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, what a blessing it is to us. Sometimes it's, it's hard for us to read because it shows us our failures. It shows us our sin and our undone condition. But we're thankful that You are a gracious God. That You make a way that You oftentimes will allow us to, in spite of our failures, still draw near to You in the way of relationship. And Lord, there's so many things we can learn by watching what uh, Israel did and Your reaction to that that will help us in our lives. May we be faithful. May we see You in a new light, in a different light, in a light that we are able to be able to glorify You in everything about our lives, that we give You the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Dismiss us now with Your blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.